Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. O gracious and most merciful Father, we give you thanks and praise that you have dealt with us, not according to how we deserve, but how you have shown us great mercy. Lord, according to your promises and your faithfulness, Lord, we pray that you would teach us your good judgments and your knowledge, that we might be able to believe your word, believe in Christ who came. Lord, when we were afflicted, we went astray, but now we keep your word. Lord, you are good and do good things. Lord, let us understand your goodness that we might understand your good things that you do. We pray all these in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Hear now the word Lord from Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 to 21. This is God's holy, inerrant, infallible word. Please take heed how you hear. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, They said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of your servant of servants of God, of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Why do you believe that? Great question to be able to ask ourselves of anything, really. It's a great question, I think, to be able to ask children. You can often ask that question after they utter something from their lips to be able to help understand how they connect the dots and how they see the world, how they understand the world, how those words then came out of their mouth. Stella, now quite a few years ago, blurted this out one day. Do you know spiders eat human food too? Now, the question then comes from your mouth. Why do you say that? Why do you believe that? Now, her answer wasn't well thought of. I just thought of it, just popped into my head. Now, often when you ask these questions of children, you get a funny story to be able to tell like I do. But you see how their brain is ticking behind this. Why do you believe that? A good question for Christians to be able to say. But Christians need to be able to answer this question, and we need to have answers for a lot of the hard questions which come to us. 
I think Christians not only just have a answer to be able to give, I think Christians have the best answer to be able to give, especially of the hardest of questions. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 3, But in your hearts honor Christ as Lord and as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Peter says, here as Christians are asked this question, why do you have this hope? We have a reason for this hope in which we give. We have this reason why we can answer this question. Why do you believe that? And I think one of the hardest questions anyone will ever face in this life is why do bad things or evil things happen? And often this question is posed in the way, why did this evil thing happen to me? And often it's not approached as a philosophical question. Why is there evil in the world generally? But it's often a personal question that comes up at a personal time in people's lives. It's not to be asked in a classroom. Often it is asked in the doctor's office. At the kitchen table over weeping with a box of tissues. Or even the morgue. The question can be shaped by why is there good or evil? But I think the biggest hurdle that we face, why did this happen to me? The me is the central part of that question. And this is a great question. It's a great question because it's a real question. And I believe Christianity has the best answer to this question, not just a answer to this question. Because we have a reason why we have hope, even in that dark question. And I'm sure Joseph had thought about this question. At the bottom of the pit, as he's sitting there, left for dead, as they go off to be able to eat their lunch, as they look back on this moment, his brothers said that we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress in his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. As he's sitting there in the bottom of this hole, this pit, and he's crying out, why me? Maybe not as he's in the bottom of the hole, but surely as those shekels were put upon him as he was dragged to be sold in Egypt. As the author of Psalms points back at this time and says that his feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. And here Joseph would have been asking, why me? Why his life was going on and things maybe seemed to be taking a turn for the best. And then Potiphar's wife, that one day, came up and falsely accused him of something he did not do. Actually quite the opposite. And then now he's thrown into the prison. Why me? Or that next day as he tells the cupbearer to remember me when you visit Pharaoh. What happened? He was forgotten. Possibly years later, he asked the same question, why me? Thirteen years goes before he stands before Pharaoh's, another seven years of good years, and then he has all this time to be able to ask this question. Have you ever asked this question? Why me? Why did this happen to me? 
It would be a couple of years into the famine that he would stand before his brothers again. He was able to answer them even at that point in chapter 45. He said, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me here before you to preserve life. And then in verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve life for you, a remnant on earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. He was able, even at that point, to be able to see God's purpose in him being sent to Egypt. He was able to see God's hand at work. He had a reason for the hope in which he believed. Now, in this chapter, we see this lesson even more unpacked of this hope that, Jesus, uh, that Joseph had. He understood God's plan in chapter 45. But in chapter 50, we're able to see his why do you believe that, that reasoning. The first thing that Joseph understood was Joseph understood that man's heart was sinful. Joseph understood that man's heart was sinful. Joseph's brothers lived their life, and it seemed their whole life was racked with guilt of what they did to their brother. Anything, any bad thing comes into their life, in their history, they immediately bring up what they had done to Joseph. They feel this sense of shame that this is some form of payback. What they did those years later is they sold their brother into slavery for 20 pieces of silver. There was a great lesson and a true reality that we learn about sin. Sin has lasting effects on the human soul. The joy and pleasure of sin lasts just but for a short time. But the shame can continue. Adam and Eve tasted that forbidden fruit, but long after that fruit has left their taste buds, they felt a sense of shame upon their shoulders. The brothers of Joseph most likely would have spent their 20 pieces of silver many years before. They only merely got two pieces each. But the reality is that they still had the effects of this on their own soul. After Jacob had passed away, they feared for their life. They thought that now Joseph was looking now for a chance because their father had died. Now he would cease to look after them and find a way to be able to destroy them. He thought they were only being nice because of this appearance of what Jacob had done. And they were afraid for their life. They were so much afraid that they don't want to be able to go and confront him in person. They send a messenger before Joseph. And they tell this messenger to make up this false story about these false words that were on their dead father's lips. Now previously, in the previous chapter, Joseph had gone to great lengths to be able to make sure he kept their promise to his father about burying him in the field of Machpelah. And his brothers thought, maybe if we could make him think that their father Jacob had promised that Joseph would not kill us, then maybe our lives would be saved. That Joseph then might not take revenge, make vengeance on us. Now we need to move on, before we move on, we need to think about what the brothers were thinking at this point. They admit their sin. Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. 
Forgive the transgression of your servants of the Lord. They admit their sin. They seek forgiveness. And they seek to be able to even play into Joseph's weaknesses, you might say. His love for his father. But secondly, his love for God. Calling themselves servants of God. This is the first thing that we need to understand. Why do bad things happen in this life? And the true answer to this question is sin is in the world. That their brothers truly understood that they did evil that day. They had evil intentions of the heart. See this throughout this chapter. Pay back all the evil that we did to him. Forgive their brothers because they did evil to you. Joseph says that you meant evil against me. The Bible does actually teach that there is such thing as good and evil. And evil does exist. It's not some made up thing. It's not something that is magically just erased. In all of this, this passage does not deny that evil was done to Joseph. That there is evil in the world and evil comes from the hearts of men. That Joseph in all of this was the one who was sinned against. Doesn't seem that Joseph did any sin, or especially of this large scale. His brothers seem to be the, the greater sinners, you might say. But here's the great problem of the thinking of the world today. The problem is twofold. The first is they do not know what good and evil is. And by this I mean that they do not know how to define the difference between good and evil. Isaiah chapter 5 says they call evil good and good evil. Darkness light, light darkness, bitter sweet, sweet bitter. The reason they do this is they're wise in their own eyes. They don't seek to be able to go to God and find out what God is. So they don't, if they do define good and evil, they define good and evil falsely. Actually, opposite. But secondly, they do not know what good and evil is. They have no reason to be able to cry injustice. Ultimately, when they see something they call wrong, they have no reason to be able to call it wrong. Either they point to a natural reasoning, but in doing so they deny the ground on which they claim where we came from. If they're going to say that we're animals of evolution, what makes it wrong for a lion to kill a zebra? Or animals to be able to fight over territory of the same kind? What makes that different from then a man killing another man. If we're merely animals, then why do we have morality? But if they don't make that argument from uh, from nature, they make an error of believing that it's based upon a majority opinion. If you ask people what they ultimately believe or why something is good or evil... They then come back to society then decides what good or evil is. And I believe this is what the common view is today. 
is not about what is right or wrong. It's about what is right or wrong as what society defines as right or wrong. And they turn to issues that are faced today, and often they're right in their judgment of something being good or evil sometimes. But if you go in times past, they will cry that this was wrong or right. But that's not the view of the majority back then. How do then you decide what is good or evil? Whereas Christians have an understanding. They go, good is where goodness comes from is God. Evil is within us, sin. Therefore, we turn to God to be able to understand what is good. The truth and reality is that Genesis 2 speaks of this. This tree of knowledge of good and evil. For the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And Joseph does not then deny this evil done to him. He has cried a many a night of what has happened to him, I am sure. However, Joseph has a bigger God than these great sins. He understands God is works. Second thing Joseph understands is Joseph understood God's justice. Joseph understood God's justice. Joseph turns to them and says, Do not fear. Am I in the place of God? Briefly, Joseph does not then claim to be God. He understands the sinful hearts of man. But he also understands there is wrong that is done to him. And he does not deny that. He understands that God is just. Not only God is good and man is evil, but God is just and all his judgments are just and good. That God sees everything. That his ten brothers that day who threw him into the pit most likely thought they were the only ones watching. But God knew what happened. Jacob didn't know what happened to his son that day. God did. You can even see Paul's theology of unpacking this idea. You might see Paul has just read Rome, uh, the end of Genesis and he's able to write in Romans 12. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul, you could say, has just read this verse, read through the story of Genesis and this other passage he quotes here. And he's able to be able to say, live like Joseph did. Understand that you are not God, that God is just. True justice only comes by the hand of God. Third thing Joseph understood was God's plan and his promises. That Joseph understood God's plan and promises. In verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. He does not deny uh, man's sinful heart, the wickedness of man. 
That he understands he's in this place and position because man, he sees the dots and he, he knows that the wicked sinful hearts of men. But he also sees above all of this, this sovereign God who ordains everything that shall come to plan, pass. He understands God's plan and his promises. He firstly understands God's plan to be able to, the trump's human plans. In Proverbs chapter 16, it says the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. He understands that the heart of man can plan what he's doing and scheming and and even in this evil, wicked things that he carries out. But it is the Lord above it who is the one who establishes his steps. That God's plan is greater than even humans' man plan. The second thing is God's plan is for good. You see this in evil man plans his step, God establishes his steps, but God meant it for good. That God's plan is carried out for his good. Paul in Romans 8, For we know that those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. That he's not denying wicked things happen. He's not saying those wicked things are then good. But God knows all things that he's able to work them together, even the wicked things, to carry out good in the end. For those who are called according to his purpose. It's not then that these wicked things are just used and God says, well, how can I make this better than the bad things? He's planned it that all things work together for good. Or Jeremiah writes in Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now what is happening is these people are going to be thrown into exile for 70 years. But in this, God has a plan and a purpose. And those plan and purposes is for good for the people of God. But thirdly, that God's plan is the good plan. Not only that he can make it work out in the end, but God had a plan and a purpose, as Joseph said in chapter 45, to be able to save a remnant of the people of God. He understood the promises of God that God would not let his people just be wiped out. He has a plan and a promise to be able to carry out. Joseph said that to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. I mean, it's a phenomenal thing to be able to think about. That God's plan for Joseph was to bring a good, good thing out in the end. That many people would be saved, not just the people of God, but people in the, time, the world at that time, but most importantly, the people of God, that he preserved the people of God to be able to carry out his promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and then to Jacob, to be able to see all these promises fulfilled. That God had a plan to be able to do that. But I think, just a mind-boggling thing, how God does this. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. The jealous brother is plotting and scheming. The selling of him to the Ishmaelites who are going to Egypt to sell spices. Then to be sold in the house of Potiphar, 
who this high-ranking official, then to be thrown into prison and into prison where he would serve with these two people, the baker and the cupbearer, who were then given these dreams in which he was to interpret, even the cupbearer going and forgetting about Joseph until that time where Pharaoh has this dream he needs interpreted, and Pharaoh has a need for that dream to be interpreted. All the people of Egypt couldn't interpret the dream, but yet at this time, Joseph was the only one that popped into the hand, the mind of the cupbearer. And even to the point where Joseph is selected to be the man who watches over Pharaoh's house and all of Pharaoh's things. You see the works of human minds and cunning and evil schemes and plots forgetfulness of people. Each of these a clog in the clock which is turning. Yet God is above as God is intending this and working this, meaning this for good. He's above it all using these agents to be able to accomplish His purposes. Now God is not the author of sin. It is clearly His brothers who do the evil thing against Joseph. It is clearly Potiphar's wife who falsely accuses him. Not God. However, God is the one who ordains everything to come to pass for his own purposes. Now even take this story back. You think of all the cogs that are turning in the story of Joseph to be able to carry out the good plans and purposes of God. But yet this is a slither in the overall plans and purposes of God, in even the story of Genesis. Remember back all the way to Genesis chapter 15, as the Lord tells Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possession." So even in here, there's many cogs that are turning in the story of Joseph in this bigger cogs of the story of Genesis and the bigger story of the story of the whole redemptive timeline from creation up to the coming of Jesus at the end of the age. And all of these cogs are turning and God is there orchestrating everything that shall come to pass for his purposes and his glory. But I think you find in this passage, in the very last verse that we read, not just all these theology and doctrines, but that this teaches us that we can have comfort. The last thing that Joseph understood was Joseph was able to then comfort his brothers with this doctrine. He turns in verse 21, he says, Do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This theology of God's justice and providence, his sovereignty over all things, brings us comfort. Let us think about this for a minute. If God is not sovereign, and we know that the Bible teaches that man is sinful, then what hope do we have? 
What reason do we have for the hope? Why would you pray if God is not able to answer your prayers? If he's unable to be able to do anything about it? That we see, even in the book of Genesis, God carrying out his promise to fulfill which he made right at that very day when Adam and Eve ate of that forbidden fruit, understanding good and evil. But yet God, before he turns to Adam and Eve, he says to the serpent, that I will put enmity between you and the woman and the offspring after you. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. If God is not sovereign, then he cannot make a promise And know that he's going to carry it out. If he is not sovereign, then he cannot use all these things to carry out his purpose and promise. He would not be able to keep his promises. Because they would be left up to what man does. But the truth is, God is sovereign. And he does keep his promises. R.C. Sproul said... If there is one single molecule in this universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we would have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. If he cannot control a molecule that he created, then he cannot control or fulfill his promises. And we see that this plan that he promised in Genesis that flows throughout all of the scripture is accomplished, not by mere luck or chance, but by the hand of God. This is not merely just a strange interpretation of God's word, but even the apostles understood this as they looked back on Christ's death. Later tonight... Think of the many cogs that changed and stirred even in the last week of Christ's life. And how much was even foretold centuries before. But the apostles understood that this was not mere chance that happened. In Acts chapter 4, when they're released, they get together and pray about what the chief priests and scribes and elders had said to them. And when they hear of what the chief priests and elders said, they lifted their voices together to God and they prayed, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They look back on this situation. David writing Psalm 2 centuries before, a millennia before Jesus even walked this earth. They were able to say that he was writing about Jesus. 
And those people that were in that psalm are Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles. And all of this was carried out by what God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. And we find comfort in this, the promise of God, because He is sovereign. He is able to be able to complete the plans which He promises. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, is this proof that God is sovereign over all things. The promises found in Genesis 3, the snake crusher coming and all throughout the place through Scripture. Heidelberg Catechism, question 27, uh, 28, I often quote 27, which speaks of God's fatherly hand administering all things to us. But the following question asks this, What does it profit us to know that God has created and by His providence still upholds things? The author of the Catechism says that we may know, we may be patient in adversary, adversity, thankful in prosperity. For what is future? Have good confidence in our faithful God and Father, that no creature shall separate us from His love, since all creatures are so in His hand, and without His will they cannot so much move. We see God's sovereign power over things, but we see that this brings us comfort knowing that God is sovereign over all these things. We have comfort in knowing this great and glorious truth. As Peter says, that we have a reason for this hope that we have. This hope that God fulfills his promises because he is sovereign over all things. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. O gracious and most merciful Father, we give you thanks and praise that you are indeed sovereign over all things. That you bring about good even through the wicked hearts and deeds of man that each is but a cog in your wheel, carrying out your plans and purposes to your glory and your end. We pray that we would see, even in the wicked things that are done to us, that they are but cogs churning in your wheel of providence. We pray that we would be able to trust in you, knowing you are sovereign over all things. Lord, we would pray that we would be comforted, knowing that there is no rogue molecule in this universe, that all things do as you command and are at your disposal. We pray that we would see these things even in the darkest of nights and the coldest of winters. We would praise your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook. Or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.